Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the January 13th, 2013, Don't Let It Go Unheard. It's the podcast devoted to the discussion of current events and politics from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, Objectivism. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and with me as usual, sitting here in the studio, is cartoonist Bosch Faustin. And today I've got a few stories that I'd like to talk to you about. First one is so-called, and I'm going to tell you why I say so-called, Internet Activist. Aaron Swartz commits suicide at age 26, and I will just, you, you think it's Schwartz, but it's S-W-A-R. Sometimes, so I don't know. You might, might be right. Okay. There is no S-C-H-W, you know, like the normal Schwartz, so I would say it's Swartz. In any event, um, he committed suicide, and why is that interesting to me? I'll let you know in a few minutes. Then we're going to talk about a uh, story, I guess it first appeared on Breitbart. Somebody thought, I guess they were reading the Obamacare legislation because they had nothing better to put them to sleep at night, and they found a provision that they believed would prevent Harry Reid or Joe Biden from carrying out promises to do executive orders in order to achieve gun control if, as is suspected, the House with, you know, GOP majority isn't going to go along with what Obama wants to do with that. So is it true? Is there really some sort of silver lining in the Obamacare legislation that could prevent Obama from issuing an executive order that controls guns? We'll find out. A third story that I have was passed on to me by a listener, and it says that in Switzerland, which, by the way, is actually good on the issue of guns, and we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, is perhaps going to be pretty bad on the issue of executive salaries. They are going to vote in March on an initiative that proposes to protect the people from executives getting so-called rip-off salaries. So we'll talk about that. And then I have a few other stories, and I want to end at least on one good note before the end. That was part of our resolution for 2013. Now, what is this? In the chat room, Bosch is pointing out something. Where is uh, D.B. Sloan? Whose turn is it to watch her? And Debbie says... (laughs) And Debbie says, I watch me. So who who needs to watch her? Is she some person who's going to be misbehaving or something? She's always so helpful. I watch me. I like Um, her. Now people are posting in the chat room to tell us that their sound is working. Yay, and the chat room's working. Um, And the chat room is working. So we got the sound and the chat room together. This is the third show of the new year. So I figure, you know, we can... Actually, it's the second show of the new year. Second show. Yeah. Last show of last year was the one in which the chat room said, "Uh uh-uh, we're out of here. So let me uh, just start out a little bit with a follow-up on some of the discussion that we've been having about New Year's resolutions and things that are helpful. The GTD seminar, the David Allen, you know, getting things done seminar that I told you guys about that, sorry, wasn't free. They had it on uh, the web on last Friday. Listen to it. It, it It was quite good. 
in general, I think GTD, just buying the book, which is quite cheap, and going through it and reading it for yourself and figuring out how you can incorporate these ideas, which essentially, uh, this is the essence of GTD. It consists of taking all of the things that you are committed to, that you have commitments about or that you want to have differently than they exist in the world. So suppose you needed your living room painted a different color. You don't like the way it is now. You want it to be different. So anything you want to be different, anything that you have committed to, you record in a trusted system which you know that you will reference and look at regularly on a regular basis. Why? So that you can get all these commitments off your mind and focus on the things in front of you. It's a really nice technology. There's also some aspects about it which I see parallels to objectivist epistemology. We might have a whole GTD show. Maybe I could interview David Allen a little bit about this as well. It could could be really fun if he would do it. Um, So I think that is worthwhile. I listened to and watched uh, or looked at the slides for Alex Epstein's Resolution Revolution, uh, you know, little webinar that he did. And he had an interesting idea, which was that if you have certain goals and you know that in order to achieve those goals, there are habits that you would like to instill in yourself that are going to make you more likely to achieve those goals than not or more likely to be more productive, that what you should do is you should have a daily phone call. I think he called it an inevitability meeting with somebody else and you would go ahead and go through Uh, questions that would bring up these things, these habits that you want to instill in yourself. And habits that he talked about in in the seminar, uh, you know, that he referred to that might be good, what he calls high leverage activities or high leverage uh, habits. Well, one would be, I would say, asking yourself to focus on what are your top three priorities for the day. Uh, Filling out your calendar at the beginning of the day so that you actually plan out when you're going to achieve these three priorities, and also, importantly, to ask yourself how your priorities for the day align with your purpose. And for more on purpose, I had referred everybody to Tara Smith's lecture on purpose, which is available through the Ayn Rand Institute's e-bookstore. So, um, yeah, for 99 cents only, this whole lecture on purpose, on on narrowing in on a purpose for for your life. If you ask how your priorities for the day align with your purpose, it's certainly going to be more motivating for you. So uh, I I think those are worthwhile. The other one that I think is worthwhile is each day at the end of the day, naming a few things, three things, five things, whatever, that you are grateful for about that day, perhaps even writing it down in a journal or something like that. So doing those things, I think, each day are probably things that could really help you carry on momentum through the new year, whether you're going to do an inevitability meeting or not, or whether you would rely on technology that's available on the computer. There's a website called askmeevery.com, askmeevery.com, that will ask you questions every day if you program it. I don't know if you can program it to a certain time of day. Askmeevery.com. But... Alex argues convincingly in his webinar that it needs to be a person. So there's that. And let me tell you about one other thing. If your New Year's resolution, like mine, or at least one of them, resolves around getting any kind of a writing project or multiple writing projects done, you might be interested in the upcoming teleseminar that's being put on by Don Watkins. Don Watkins, as you know, uh, is the co-author of Free Market Revolution. He co-authored the book with Yaron Brook. 
And you can listen to Don Watkins interviewed by me about the book. And it's a really good, uh, you know, he does a good job. I think I do a good job interviewing. I want to say it's a really good interview, but I don't want to blow my own horn here. But uh, that was on September 30th, 2012. So if you go into archive episodes of Don't Let It Go Unheard, you can listen to a whole interview, an hour with Don Watkins about his book. And he answers questions and everything. He was a, a really good interview guest and that was a very popular show so listen to him there if you think he knows what he's talking about you might want to take this teleseminar it's going to be on february 2nd through i believe the 16th so 2nd 9th and 16th from 1 to 2 p.m pacific time if you go to don watkins page on facebook again his last name is spelled w-a-t-k-i-n-s you will find the event it's called mastering the art of writing And um, in it, he promises to teach you the skill. He says, writing is a skill that can be learned. And uh, again, one of the things that I find very intriguing is he talks about the issue of outlines, why so many people for outlines, you know, outlines for them is a waste of time. And he says, instead, if you do it correctly, you can use them to save yourself time. Things like how to judge your audience, et cetera. So uh, highly recommended i think i mean at least i'm interested to do it because yes he co-wrote with your own book i think your own book would be a demanding co-author to work with and and don succeeded so i think that that would be worthwhile okay let's jump in um oh yeah people in the chat room are saying that they did enjoy the uh the webinar with alex epstein and that some people are signing up for don watkins so i'll see you on there because i'm going to be on that seminar myself. I don't know if he's got a chat room or anything going, but we can, of course, compare notes afterwards. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, so let's talk about Aaron Swartz. And the the thing that jumped out at me about this story is, first of all, that they call him an Internet activist. Okay, that's the term used in the New York Times. I'm looking at January 12th New York Times article written by John Schwartz. S-C-H-W-A-R-T, right? Um, But it says, Internet activist, a creator of RSS, is dead at 26, apparently a suicide. And the thing that you learn about Swartz in the article is that he was going to be prosecuted. He had been indicted in July of 2011 on federal charges for gaining illegal access to JSTOR. Anyone who's an academic probably knows who JSTOR is. If you're not, what it is is, and as the article describes here, a subscription-only service for distributing scientific and literary journals, all of these academic journals. Um, And what Swartz did is he gained illegal access to it, and then he proceeded to download 4.8 million articles and documents which is nearly the entire library of JSTOR. Now, why did he do this? Because he believes that these things should be free, that charging on the Internet for either you know your works of writing, for information that it basically shouldn't have been allowed. He had previously uh, gotten together with someone named Carl Malamud. He's also a so-called activist. And they accessed together the, uh, something called PACER, which is Public Access to Court Electronic Records. 
And apparently, if you want to get electronic records from courthouses around the United States, you have to pay $0.10 per page for those records. And he thought, well, you shouldn't have to pay for them at all. And so he proceeded to go ahead and take the ones that he had accessed properly in that case, I guess, you know, paid $0.10 per page. And he downloaded 20 million pages of them from, oh, from free, free library accounts. And then he went ahead and made them available for free there. It turns out he wasn't prosecuted at that point, but um, in 2011, he used the networks at MIT to break into JSTOR, and that's when he ended up being indicted, and he was going to be facing trial pretty soon. Uh, the penalties that he could have faced were up to 35 years in prison and $1 million in fines. So I assume that this upcoming... Uh, prosecution was playing a role in why he committed suicide, and uh, but you're also told in He's articles about him. Yeah, young, young, 26 years old. Of course, at 14, he helped created RSS, and I don't even know what RSS stands for. If you're a techie in the chat room and you want to tell me, that would be great. But RSS, we all know what it is, or a lot of us know what it is. It is a tool that allows you to subscribe to online information. You'll get an email or some kind of a notification when something on the Internet that you're interested in has been updated, if there's a new podcast, a new blog post, et cetera, et cetera. So for many people, because, I mean, 14 years old, he helps design this extremely useful tool they see him as a hero, but at the same time, some people see him as a hero because of his so-called activism, and his activism consists of basically piracy, yeah. right? You've got material under copyright. Oh, look, in the, in the chat room, I do have somebody who tells me what RSS is. It is Rich Site Summary. Rich Site Summary. This, this guy was also a co-founder of uh, Reddit. When I gather Reddit has books and movies, you know, just just stolen and to 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 be viewed and read on the internet somehow, some way. So he's also co-founded that. Yeah, I think the thing that I read was that he was in a company or he had a company that merged with Reddit or something like that. So yeah, and and that was actually Martin in the chat room. Thanks. He also Martin. had another one called Something Progress. So he's a leftist. I mean, you know, he's a progressive. Right, right. The other thing is, uh, there's he co-founded something called Demand Progress, a group that promotes online campaigns on social justice issues, and it says, it says including a successful effort with other groups to oppose oppose a Hollywood-backed internet piracy bill. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this guy was in opposition to intellectual property, right. and yes, the particular targets that he were was going after. Were, you know, one was so-called public records, but I mean, the fact that something is a public record, and even though it's a court document, even if it's a document about you, doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't have to pay anything for it. I mean, why wouldn't we have to pay for services of the government? Mm -hmm. And just as, you know, there are certain toll roads and things like this, you say, okay, well, the users of the roads are the ones that should have to pay for those things. I mean, again, I don't believe in public roads, so this is actually a really bad analogy. So can you stop me now, Bosch? <laughs> That's right. Stop me now. Um, but, you know, here, here are people who themselves want access to these documents, and it's going to take either the resources of a computer or a person to produce these documents for you. Why shouldn't you have to pay $0.10 cents a page? Of That's a um, You know, yes, we all are going to, uh, you know, be 
subject to a court system in this country. But if you wanted to sue somebody, why shouldn't you have to pay certain filing fees and things like this? It yeah. just seems like anything else that you should pay for a service. You know, it's like it's like people with the, with the Napster thing. Remember that? Getting free songs, you know, and they thought, well, I don't have to pay for this, so therefore I don't have to, and that's it, and I won't, and it's it's evil. And well, the thing that is just sad is that there are so many people who think that the default is that intellectual property is some sort of phony, made up, arbitrary concept, and and really all these people who uphold intellectual property rights are just trying to restrain the free flow of information, especially right. on the internet, because gee, on the internet you should be able to get anything at a click of a button. And what's the term they use? Democracy at work, you know, like internet democracy or some of that. They, they use terms like that. Like we we have democratized the internet. Yeah, just democratize the internet, etc. Um, one thing that's really sad here is that JSTOR, I guess, is caving into this pressure. Yeah, because it kills uh, you know, and 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 JSTOR, yes, it's a subscription service. It's quite expensive, but they need it because there's just you know these articles, scholars who are trying to get tenure in the academic world, they just churn out article after article after article. And JSTOR archives all these articles and makes them accessible to people in digital form. It costs money to do all this. And they say they need the money from the subscriptions to collect and distribute the material. And in some cases, they help to subsidize institutions that can't afford the the subscription. So they actually spend the money uh, for good things, of course, they should be able to make a profit as well. Uh, but no, you know, because it's scientific articles, it's scholarly articles. Swartz decided it was, you know, up to him. And yeah, he's brilliant. He can write a computer program that hacks into it and downloads, what was it, 4.8 million articles, etc. Et um, and it caught up with him. They didn't prosecute him for that PACER, you know, the court document access, but they went ahead and prosecuted him under for the JSTOR, even though significantly JSTOR eventually declined to pursue the case. Mm-hmm. So they withdrew themselves from the prosecution of Swartz. But a U.S. attorney, Carmen Ortiz, went ahead and pressed on and said, and this is, I think, good, she says, quote, stealing is stealing whether you use a computer command or a crowbar. And whether you take documents, data, or dollars, end quote. So Carmen Ortiz apparently does, uh, you know, understand intellectual property. Now, why did I want to discuss this story? One was because the New York Times just calls him an internet activist and opens the article in such a glowing way. Mm-hmm. They call him a wizardly programmer who as a teenager helped develop code that delivered ever-changing web content to users. They're talking about RSS. And he says, and the article says, and who later became a steadfast crusader to make that information freely available. That's how they describe it. New York Times writer, right? New York Times writer, yeah. Um, So, you know, he's this genius. Yeah. I mean, He's imagine if he, if he actually made use of his actual talent or ability. Imagine that. Well, he did. I mean, the RSS I mean, thing is not yeah, yeah, well, bad. I want to say is this, though, the things that he got in trouble for. Right, yeah. right. And no, he, it would he be was good. so brilliant. So, so there's that. There's this laudatory headline in the New York Times just, you know, using this euphemism, Internet activist, yeah. when in fact what he's trying to do is destroy intellectual property Did they just coin that, that, that phrase? Because I'm like, Internet activist? 
Apparently, the, they the, call the, other people activists too. So it's it's so neutral sounding. It's like yeah. you know, I tell you, oh, that was very interesting, Bosch. Internet you know? thief. I mean, you know, internet. You know, right. how about that one? Right. Robin Hood out of the internet. You know. Oh, in the chat room, Deborah is pointing out that JSTOR in ref, you know declining to continue prosecuting Swartz was in effect sanctioning right. what he was doing Absolutely and right. them being the victim. It's what Ayn Rand called the sanction of the victim, and that's true. The, the other thing that got me about this is that, yeah, oh, yeah, people in, in the Robert. chat room are saying the New York no, Times Robert. should offer their paper for free. Yeah, this is Robert from New York City. Uh, charging money exploits the public. That's right. New York Times is a little easier to access, at least within recent articles, than Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal, somebody will post an article even from the last day or so, and you can't access it without no. a subscription. New York Times, you can... Uh, get recent articles at least. But yeah, I mean, there's stuff that they require a subscription for. Imagine they, that. They, they were pissed because no one will steal the articles. They said, okay, listen, make, make them free out there, right? New York Times? They Maybe. were pissed because no one was, will steal well, the articles. Well, and here's the thing. I mean, really, they need traffic uh, so that people want to buy advertising. Right. What's so bad about offering things for free and getting the traffic so that people click on ads, right? But So the other thing that got me about this was that there was little online tributes. This was a, a something oh, called no. Storify at the Wall Street Journal. I actually subscribed to the Wall Street Journal online. And a little sub-thing, a blog that they have called Storify, posted these online tributes. Again, they call him Internet Activist Aaron Swartz. And just give me, you know, give you a couple samples here. One says... These are tweets, okay, so the grammar's not so great. Aaron dead. World wanderers, we have lost a wise elder. Hackers for right, we are one down. And then he says, parents all, we have lost a child, let us weep. But hackers for right. So hacking is fine. It's for this great cause, which is making information free on the Internet. Then, if these people ever had anything worthwhile and it was stolen from them, I think they'd realize. But yeah. they don't. So, uh, Someone was in an account that they call themselves Aaron Swartz, but I'm sure it wasn't him. It says, Aaron Swartz made no. our world more free. <laughs> oh, Be what? free, Internet. No. Be free, they what say. What a Be way free. to put it. He made our world more free. What a way to put it. Yeah. Wow. Made our world more free. He made thievery seem better. Yeah. So... Um, the thing that I'm concerned about is that because he committed suicide, he is becoming a martyr in the cause of destroying intellectual property. That was the thing that occurred to me is that he's going to be looked upon as some kind of martyr. And Bosch, I think, I mean, I think I read this as well, but you said you also read that his family family is mad at MIT. Right. Not at the, at the J, what's it called? MIT, I think, because they were, they were still going to go after him. Well, I think MIT was the first one that called it to the prosecutor's attention, probably. Right. And then, I think, what was it, last year? 2011, he was, uh, right? Yeah, July 2011 right, exactly was when right. he was indicted. And the other one refused to do it, but MIT wanted to go forward still, right? 
Well, it wasn't MIT. It was oh, okay. an attorney, but, you know, like a, an, an attorney general or assistant attorney well, was general. Was it here or was it another article I read? Because it was another article. Well, right. I but, I mean, it was. I think it was MIT that was the whistleblower okay. on this. Okay. And, okay. So and they were condemning that. If, if only MIT right. just said, oh, Aaron Swartz, you are a god because you invented RSS at 14 or helped create RSS at 14. So we'll just let you get away because, after all, you're trying to do is make information be free right. on the Internet. What a way to put it again he made the world more free be free be free so you know what's all the hubbub about this intellectual property there might even be some people online here by the way if you want to call in and talk about this maybe even have a little debate with me about why information should be free on the internet you're free to do so 760-888-5817 or you can uh, try to argue in the chat room here but you know this idea that information that things should just be free on the internet why because it is possible to share them so quickly now yeah. thanks to the internet i mean you know suddenly with the invention of the internet all right. rights to music gone that's what happens you know and and and, and this Articles. happens yeah this happens every time there's new technology right, right. because when the 8 track tape even which you could record on yeah. was invented I I think that there was a big, you know, push because people could take their long playing records, if you remember long playing records, and you could make a recording of it on an eight track tape, and then you could give that eight track tape to your friend, and then your friend wouldn't have to buy the record. So every time there's new technology that makes it easier to share. Yeah, exactly. When when, when it's not hardware, when it's actual some software, when when it's something, it's like it's out in the ether somewhere. So they figure, well, I'm not really stealing anything. It's it's available. It's there. So. Therefore, I'm not really stealing. And and with the internet, it's even more so because you have an exact digital copy right. of music that itself right. was already digitized in the form that it was released. You know, it, it used to be you'd make maybe a digital recording off of a, a record or something, and there'd always be some degradation at least. So the person who, you know, the, the worst cases of piracy, I can't believe when Bosch shows me that this happens, but there are idiots who will go into a movie theater and put up their little iPhone or whatever and take a movie of the movie and then put it on the internet and some and people also make, are make DVDs out of it literally oh, oh that's bizarre i mean people are content to watch stuff of super poor quality but at least that they have to suffer with the poor quality exactly. but you know but this idea that somehow with the advent of technology that makes it possible to share and therefore intellectual okay. property therefore it's okay don't even worry about it so I just wanted to remind you, if you if you wanted a little bit of a, a primer on on why intellectual property isn't important, they want to it, normalize theft. I mean, that's what they want to do. Just normalize it. Right. It's normal. I'm sorry. Right. Right. Um, what you need to look at in terms of an article is patents and copyrights, which is an article by Ayn Rand in the book called Capitalism: The Unknown Ideal. So if you look up look up Rand Capitalism: The Unknown Ideal in there, there's an article called Patents and Copyrights. And in the article, Rand writes that patents and copyrights are what? They are the legal implementation of the base of all property rights, which is a man's right to the product of his mind. And that is the base of all property rights, okay? Not just intellectual property rights. Why? Think of any piece of property to which you have a right. That property would be of no value whatever, without the work of someone's mind. So take your home. 
your home is just a pile of, maybe it could be bricks, it could be certain metal beams. I mean, I don't know how modern your home is, but it could be made of just a standard wood frame, etc. But all of that material would be worthless. It'd be sitting there in a pile and not a house without the work of an architect, without the work of a builder, some sort of contractor. So without actual intellectual effort, no property would be valuable at all, right? But what some people seem to think is that they seem to think that because intellectual property is abstract in a certain way, you know, for instance, if you take a novel, let's take, uh, you know, Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, right? That novel, it is the novel itself. It's not the particular printed version of a novel that you might be holding in your hand that is protected. It is the abstract entity, the novel itself, that actually is protected by copyright laws, or at least at one time would have been protected by copyright laws. Victor Hugo's long uh, passed away. But, uh, you know, in general, patent and copyright laws, right, Rand, writes Rand, acknowledge the paramount role and I'm again quoting from this article, uh, the paramount role of mental effort in the production of material values. She says, the laws protect the mind's contribution in its purest form, the origination of an idea. The subject of patents and copyrights is intellectual property. Now, here's where people get confused, and let me continue from the article. She says, an idea as such cannot be protected until it has been given a material form. An invention has to be embodied in a physical model before it can be patented. A story has to be written or printed, right? But, she goes on, what the patent or copyright protects is not the physical object as such, but the idea which it embodies. By forbidding an unauthorized reproduction of the object, the law declares, in effect, that the physical labor of copying is not the source of the object's value. The value is created by the originator of the idea and may not be used without his consent. Thus, she continues, the law establishes the property right of a mind to that which it has brought into existence. End quote. And if you do not have the right to that which your mind has brought into existence, you don't have the right to your own life. You just don't. Uh, now, wh where some people seem to make an argument about this and say that, well, you know, if we protect intellectual property, it's really a sort of fiction. They don't like the idea that the thing that is protected is this idea or this abstract entity that is a novel, a play, a song, etc. Uh, and what I've heard, actually, from one academic is that copyright and patent, if we protect intellectual property, that it is in effect welfare, and especially copyright. I remember reading the phrase that copyright is welfare for authors. Now, why is it welfare for authors, according to this academic? It is because while you could, with, with respect to any particular physical copy of your novel, of your song, etc., you could sell it using your right to contract. And you could put conditions on the contractual relationship between you and the buyer. Nonetheless, he says, that the abstract entity itself, the copying, really doesn't have any real existence apart from the physical form. And so therefore, it 
is just a fiction to protect it. And so therefore, if the government is protecting it, it's just welfare for you. How do you answer someone like this? I mean, this is the kind of argument that's out there, right? This is just an idea. It's a song. Ideas should be free, you know, out on the Internet. How would you answer something like this? I think, actually, and, and uh, you know, if you want to read a lot of defense, a lot of really effective defense of intellectual property, I refer you to the works of Adam Mossoff. Adam Mossoff, M-O-S-S-O-F-F. He is an academic in law specializing in defending intellectual property. Uh, but the thing that always struck me with respect to that argument that I just gave you, that there is no existence of this thing to be protected, this idea or this novel, etc., apart from the particular physical instance, instantiation of the thing. I think it's the same argument where someone says that concepts are not objective. So our concept of a dog is not objective. Instead, it is just arbitrary. It's, um, you know, these people in philosophy, they used to call nominalists, where dog is just a convenient name that we happen to assign to all of these different things out there that we point to and call dogs. It's not essential. There's nothing out there about the world or about those entities that we call dogs that makes it objective that we call it. It's really just arbitrary. It's a convenient name that we decide to give them. Similarly, it's just arbitrary. It's just a favor that the government is doing for the copyright holder when it chooses to protect copyright. Why would you want to do it? Well, Thomas Jefferson is famous for writing that we need to give incentives to these authors, right? That's why we do it, just to give them incentives. And we just want to give them enough incentives so that they'll keep creating. And gee, you know, we can allow a little more free flow of information on the internet. And those creators, you know, they'll keep creating. You know, it's not going to be any big deal. That, you know, there's a whole lot of people who don't even really care about copyright. Gee, I can point to people who like the intellectual commons or creative commons or whatever they call it. But Rand writes again, and I'm, I'm kind of skipping down in the essay a bit. She says, the government does not grant a patent or copyright in the sense of a gift, a privilege, or a favor. She says, the government merely secures it. The government certifies the origination of an idea and protects its owner's exclusive right of use and disposal, end quote. Now, of course, Rand did not believe in perpetual copyright uh, some sort of a life plus, uh, you know, the life of the author plus a lifespan. And there's good reasons to have that as well because only for about a lifespan's time after the author dies could people be alive about whom the author cares. So you would want the author to be able to provide for people about whom he cares using the copyright in his work. After that, there's nobody alive that he could really care about. So I, uh, I I like the idea of life plus whatever the current average lifespan is as as the length of a, a copyright. So you know the, this entity it is an abstract entity. Do you believe that such abstract entities exist? If you believe, oh well, no, there's nothing really objective about them. You can't point to you know a novel in any way that holds up for you know in a court of law there's nothing objective about it so the the courts the courts and the the federal government are just doing you a favor 
then you're not going to believe in intellectual property. But I think you have to actually go back down to epistemology. If concepts are objective, then the things that we create building with those concepts, novels, articles, patent, you know, patentable inventions, etc., all of them are objective as well. They have an objective existence even though, yes, you have to give your particular idea a material form before you can show it to somebody else so that they can recognize it. And then, you know, people say, yes, I I recognize the existence of this thing. Yeah, it has to be embodied in a material form before there can be objective protection of that thing. But it doesn't mean that the thing itself doesn't exist at all apart from that material form. It also exists in the minds of people who can recognize and understand that a novel exists, a song exists, an invention exists. We all can abstract away from the particular physical form in which these things are embodied. And we know what it is apart from that form, that that invention, that novel, that song can be embodied countless times in countless physical forms, limited only by the natural resources that are required to do it. And of course, now we can duplicate songs and articles and things like that so easily and so cheaply thanks to the invention of uh, so many people in in the high-tech industry that, you know, you can have literally, I mean, not able to be counted by me, not countless, but not able to be counted by me in my, my lifetime, copies of the latest song by Beyonce or whoever. So that's my my little rant on intellectual property is objective. There is something about it. Yes, uh, the only way really I think to answer the critic of intellectual property rights is to go back all the way down to epistemology. I think that the people who are skeptics about intellectual property are in the end going to be skeptics about concepts. And so you may have to have that debate. But it's there, it's objective, and it is unjust to say, oh, you know, information should be free, songs should be free, we should all be free to create and, and build on everybody else's stuff. Um, it's, it's just not the case. And to treat someone like a martyr uh, because he happened to commit suicide, yes, it is very sad, and don't get me wrong, it's sad that this guy committed suicide. I don't, you know, I wouldn't wish that ill on him. I would wish him to get prosecuted, but I wouldn't wish, wish him to go ahead and kill himself. I've got a call here. I think someone wants to chime in on this story. Hi, who's this? Hi, Amy. It's Debbie. Hi, Debbie. So what did I uh, miss here in my little rant about IP and Mr. Swartz? Oh, I think it's great. I mean, I liked what you had to say. I just, this is something that is uh, a personal impact for me, and it's something that I'm really passionate about because working in Silicon Valley, um, I just am personally uh, aware of the value of IP and and one thing just as far as the technology side and and um this this particular Schwartz character had more to do with um stealing academic research articles and by the way that is a huge value um normally when i'm looking for so articles like that at least in my field these kinds of articles usually cost around $25. So I was thinking that if you have 4.8 million, almost 5 million of them, that's $125 million worth of value that this guy stole. But just also um, the value of IP when it comes to technology. 
Silicon Valley would die a sudden death if that IP was no longer protected. Um, I can't overestimate, like, all the technology that people love, like iPhones and things like that, that would not be created anymore if, if IP was no longer protected. And if I, these, these ideas, which are supposedly just not real because they're abstract, you know, they're, they're very real. And there's a lot of material investment that goes into coming, uh, coming up with an IP as well. I've spent the past year working on something for which that there are going to be various patents associated. And it's not just like you're sitting there and you have an idea and then you write it down in a patent and that's it. No, I mean, there's a huge amount of, of uh, development and testing and, and um, iteration involved. And there's a large expenditure of money that goes into developing an idea to the point where it's something that you can patent. Um, right. Like, yeah, like you said, you know, you were quoting Rand who said that, you know, the idea is not properly to be protected until it's taken physical form. Well, that's very true, and, and particularly when it comes to technology, it has to take physical form, like a progression of physical forms before it can even be fully developed as an idea. It's, it's not just some abstraction. I just think that people don't really appreciate how much work and time and money goes into coming up with this, um, some, some new idea for, uh, and I'm sure it's the same for, for books and things like that too. Right. Now, uh, you know, the, the thing about this is yes, it's gotta be embodied in, in physical form and no, it's not just, an abstraction, but the thing that you have to realize is, is that there is an objective recognition of the abstraction. And I, I'm sorry if this itself, this description and everything we're talking about sounds abstract today, but I think it's an important issue, so I did want to talk about it. Um, it's not the usual, you know, kind of politics that's, that's so easy to, to discuss. But if you don't realize that there is this abstract entity that would be stolen if it was embodied in a physical form without the author's permission or the inventor's permission, then we're lost, right? And 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 because the thing about intellectual property is that again, it can potentially be embodied in a physical form a countless number of times. It's limited basically by the natural resources required to embody it. And for purely digital content, I mean, it's just so easy to make millions and millions of copies of these things, hundreds of billions. I mean, who knows? You know, I, I can't even imagine because I'm not that great with uh, math to the high orders and stuff. But, you know, with, with the physical invention, the iPhone, the iPhone just depending on whatever you know, physical resources are required to build it, you could make tons of copies. And the the people who are the critics of intellectual property, they say, well, you know, you can still have the idea while I'm using the idea. It's not like I'm taking the idea from you and you still can't use it anymore. You can use it. It's just now I can use it too. And I'm just for the free flow of information and, and ideas. That's all I'm for. So I think it's important um, to emphasize nature of what we're protecting to counter that argument. You see what I mean? That argument that says, 
oh, well, an idea can be shared by two people at once without either of them being deprived of it. And so, therefore, really all we're doing when we protect copyright and patent, we're doing it only to the extent necessary to give them incentives. You know, you in the Silicon Valley, you guys are the workhorses and the federal government just wants to keep you guys churning out all this great technology and will give you just as much protection to keep you, you know, working for the greatest good for the greatest number. And that was Thomas Jefferson's idea. Any follow up on that, Deborah? You know, uh, yeah, I think that this very thing, the open-ended nature of the idea, that's part of what gives it such a tremendous value, and that's precisely why it should be protected. You know, because when you come up with a new idea, it does have this incredible scope, and it's not just one finite thing that you have in front of you, but it can be replicated or embodied in various ways as many times as someone can manage to do it. I, and I'm, and I don't like this utilitarian formulation that says, oh, just people need to be incentivized to come up with new ideas, so we should protect their marginally protect their intellectual property. I definitely don't agree with that. You know, it's it's not about that. It's just about protecting the the person's right to all the time and all the years of their life that they spend developing these ideas. They're not just, people have contempt, I think, for ideas, and they just don't even realize, you know, how valuable it is. Like, they think that, oh, it's not taking anything away from you because you haven't physically lost something. If I if I take your idea and, and use it for my own purposes without compensating you, that's just a terrible thing. Right. Right. And, and you know, the, the the thing with it is people sometimes are jealous of those who come up with ideas. They believe that coming up with an idea is just a matter of luck. Yeah. It's just a matter of you drawing upon the vast intellectual achievements of people, you know, behind you. All you've done is kind of rearrange the ideas that you have inherited from others. So who are you to it, be able to have them to marginalize yeah. you know, the great ideas, yeah. marginalize these these individual creations. Now let me let me go ahead and address there's an argument uh, here in the chat room. Deborah, thanks for uh, calling on this topic. I'm going to go ahead and, and address an argument that's coming up here in the chat room. People are saying that this idea of lifetime plus a certain number of years as the limitation on property like intellectual property is bad that it somehow seems utilitarian because really all you're doing is talking about incentives. Really what I'm talking about is granting first first of all okay you have to start out with the premise in protecting intellectual property just as you're protecting anything else the protection is always limited right it's not going to be unlimited it's going to be limited to some extent it's not going to go on in into perpetuity okay then you have to say well where is it rational to draw the line and i do not think it is utilitarian in fact i think it is rewarding production and achievement properly, it is recognizing production and achievement properly, to limit the duration of copyright in particular. You know, patent is going to be shorter. And patent is shorter, why? Because somebody else could have invented the same thing. You're dealing with truths out there in the world. You're not dealing with the creation of something fictitious like a novel. So patent is a different thing. But let's look at copyright. And copyright right now is, I think, life plus 70 what you're doing is you're recognizing the pretty much longest extent that the average author 
could have after his lifetime where people will be living about whom he cares, right? He cannot care about people, really, objectively, that haven't been born until after he dies, you know, roughly, right? So he may, for instance, someone's on his deathbed and he hears that he's going to be a grandfather or he would have lived to be a grandfather if he didn't have cancer or something horrible, whatever. But, you know, on average, it's a lifespan after his life during which people about whom he cares and for whom he would like to do something with the resources he has that they would be living Right. So I think it is an objective way of cutting off the duration of the copyright at about the length of an average lifespan after the author lives. I don't think it's utilitarian. You're not doing it in order to give an incentive. You're doing it, A, because it has to stop somewhere. And B, you're saying, okay, I'm going to stop it during the, you know, at the end of the lifetimes of the people about whom the author cares. He wants to be able to support his descendants, the ones that he actually had the opportunity to meet or know during his lifetime with his work. So that's a a limitation. So Earl says, what is the analogous limitation on owning a parcel of land? Earl, you should harass whatever law student you could find and ask them to explain to you the rule against perpetuities. The rule against perpetuities limits in in a semi-analogous but a much more twisted way the uh, ability to devise property to your heirs and, and to be able to control what those heirs can do with the property. So, Go ahead and, and take a look at that. But there's uh, there are limitations on all kinds of property and what what you can how you can devise property in your will and things like that. Obviously, if it's just a physical piece of property, you just leave it to a person. But there are ways that you can control what that person can do with it for a certain period of time. But you can't control it forever, and that's what the rule against perpetuities. Uh, says so. Mike in the chat room says he found my explanation helpful, which is good. I don't think it's just utilitarian. I think it is recognizing values. Uh, so we did spend most of the time on this story. Really, really, I, I you know, if you can out there when you are seeing Aaron Swartz lauded as you know some sort of martyr in the cause of making mm-hmm. information free on the internet, if you want to go ahead and take a little bit of an argument on behalf of intellectual property rights and say, look, no, he, he was a thief. Yeah. Um, he, IT thief, uh, yeah, he, idea thief. Yeah, he, he was an idea thief. And, and you'd think that he would, himself having been a creator, that he would recognize the value of it, but that isn't always the, the case. A couple more things. I just I, One of them, really, I just want to point out to you. There was supposedly this secret Obamacare provision that forbids executive orders regulating guns. And the reason that this story came up this week is because we have heard that Joe Biden let it slip. That Obama, yeah, that Obama might be planning to, if he can't get any sort of gun control legislation passed, he's just going to use executive order to do some sort of weird gun control regulation. We haven't seen what it is yet, but people are talking about it. And then I guess someone on Breitbart dug into the Obamacare legislation and said, look, there's a there's a provision that prevents him from doing this. Well, if you actually look at Obamacare at the legislation, you'll find that the only provision 
about gun control in there says, in effect, that Obamacare itself, that the Affordable Care Act itself and the system that it is setting up, you know, the medical system, will not be used as a pretense to regulate guns, to track information about the ownership of guns, etc. Um, in a health care bill, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah, that they're not going to, you know, use the health care bill in order to do I, this. It's like, first of all, why would they? And then why would they have to say that we won't do it? I mean, it's, yeah, it's so it's twisted. Insane. It's And apparently the NRA was afraid that they were going to use the database that's set up in Obamacare and to maintain to track his, uh, you know, uh, the support of the NRA. Harry Reid, you know, put that in there. Yeah. There, I mean, there's all kinds of garbage in Obamacare, but in any event, it, this has nothing to do with preventing Obama outside the context of the medical profession from trying to regulate guns through executive order. It has nothing to do with it at all. If you want to read more on this, you can go to a Forbes article written by Rick Unger, it was published on the 10th of January. It's Gun Advocates Celebrate Secret Obamacare Provision Forbidding Executive Order to Regulate Guns. And Rick Unger explains why that's just a bunch of garbage. Hmm. Then uh, one more article that I wanted to point out here. Actually, I've got a couple, like a bunch of little things here before we get to the good news. The hat tip for this one goes to Lucas Epler, who's a listener. He went to the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook and went ahead and wrote me about this. What it is is a um, an article about the Swiss who are, in March of this year, going to vote on something called the Minder Initiative. The Minder Initiative was written by someone named Thomas Minder, who wants to protect everybody, all the companies, against the so-called rip-off salaries of executives. So what the initiative calls for is a new article in the Swiss Constitution. Imagine having an article in your constitution about executive pay. Mm. It's supposed to regulate Swiss companies who are listed on the stock exchange and to increase the so-called decision-making power of their shareholders. And it says, given the climate, this, the article that I'm uh, looking at is from SwissInfo.ch, and the headline is Voters Solicited Over Executive Pay. It was published on January 8th of this year. And it says that given the anger, the popular anger against the hubris of high-flying executives, the initiative received plenty of support. It was handed into the federal chancellery in February 2008 with over 114,000 valid signatures. It has the support, of course, of the Social Democrats and the Greens. And so what it's going to do is it's going to allow the annual general meeting of the shareholders to decide what the executives should be paid and also what the board of directors should be paid. So usually the board of directors gets to decide what the CEO is going to be paid no longer if this initiative passes in March. Uh, Minder, who is the head of this initiative, you know, the, the spear behind it, he says he wants to, quote, close all the escape hatches for the profiteers. He says this is a central point when money and greed are involved, end quote. And then it says, uh, skipping down the article, particularly controversial is the obligation imposed by the initiative on pension funds to vote, quote, in the interest of their members at the AGMs of all listed companies in which they own shares. So there's all sorts of provisions to regulate executive pay. If this happens, Switzerland, even though it 
is according, Bosch told me that it is the country who actually requires everybody to privately own a gun and get trained well, on yeah. guns. They don't, they don't have a standing army, so that's why a lot of people have guns, and that's supposedly why the Nazis didn't invade, because they, they would be afraid that every house would have a gun. Right, right. So they're good about that, but if they pass this in March because they resent executives getting big salaries, yeah. it is going to be the demise of their economy. You know, people have called the Swiss, you know, um, neutral when it comes to wars, and that's why I said the Swiss watch, you know, that's all they do. I mean, but. Oh, you're okay. so bad. A, a, a couple other items about people in the culture. There's a piece going around about Jackie Chan. Uh. Uh, Jackie Chan has branded America the world's, quote, most corrupt, end quote, can country. I just, can I just add something? Yeah. I think he's been trying to break through in American uh, you know, movies, Hollywood, for years and decades, and just never really quite worked out. Just just, just let us know that that's the case, because he's supposedly a global international star, but in America, not quite. And by the way, he never learned English. He never cared to learn English. He, he learned what he needed to know for the script, and that's that's why when he speaks, you're like, I think I know what he's saying, but I'm not sure. Yeah, anyway. yeah. So he says the, the you know corruption. America is the most corrupt country in the world. <laughs> and he says, uh, you know, where does the great breakdown of corruption come from? It started exactly from the rest of the world, the United States. If our own country <laughs> won't support our own country, he, you know, who will? Because of course, China's not corrupt at all. Exactly. He he's promoting his new movie CZ12. So in case you were going to go see it, maybe you want to now decide that you're not <laughs> going to go see it because Saudi he in corrupt. fact said that we are the most Iran is corrupt. not corrupt, but you know. no, we, no, no, we have become very corrupt, no doubt about it. But there are still more corrupt countries than ours. Uh, another little piece that I want to tell you about was one, uh, there's a little interview with Jerry Springer, and it's written about at newsbusters.org. The headline is, Jerry Springer, quote, I am the father of the destruction of Western civilization, end quote. The piece was by Noel Shepard, January 12th. If you go to newsbusters.org and you find this, you will see a link to the video in which you can watch Springer talk about the following. He made an admission that Americans on both sides of the aisle might agree with. He says, I am the father of the destruction of Western civilization. Why? Because his show, and he talks about his show in a very candid way. He says, look, my show is stupid. He says, it's stupid. He says, but it's fun to do. I enjoy it. People obviously like it. Otherwise, they wouldn't watch Wait a it, minute. end quote. He's still on the air. Yeah, apparently. Oh. I don't. I didn't even know he was. But in the, he actually says of his own show, he says, it has no redeeming social value. He says it's an hour of escapism. And in, in, in the interview, when he talks about the destruction of Western civilization, he says, oh, well, it's already had a couple thousand years. And then at the end of the quote here, he says, I think we've got to give Eastern civilization a shot. A shot. Um, yeah. No. No. Oh. This, no, this is the thing. I, the the article itself, Newsbusters, huh. I think misquotes him, okay. and and it takes uh, it actually skips over the part where he says, "Oh, Western civilization so, has had wait, over wait, two thousand years." Wait, you actually suffered through the video. I watched the wow, video. Okay. I took one for the team again. Okay. Uh, but how honest is that for him to nah. say? Well, it has well, no redeeming he, social value. He checked value. his bank account before he said that. He's like, "Okay, I made my money. I made it all. So you know, now I have this guy. Finally." That's right. That's right. Uh, we've got very little time left, so I do want to end on a piece of good news. Hat tip to Rob Abiera, who shared this with me on Facebook. You can follow me on Facebook. You can subscribe to my public updates, Amy Peikoff, um, and that's what Rob Abiera does. So he says, good news 
Sherlock, the actor who plays Sherlock, Benedict Cumberbatch, 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 nominated for Best Actor in the Golden Globe Awards, which many people might be watching right now and not listening to this podcast. So I want to watch it myself, see if he's got a chance of winning. He's up against Kevin Costner and some other people, but I think he should win. Uh, definitely check out exactly. Sherlock, Sherlock on Netflix if you haven't yet done it, and you can see why I believe he deserves to win a Golden Globe. Everybody, thank you for tuning in this week. We are at the end of the show. Go ahead and join me at the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook. You can also follow, click follow here on Blog Talk Radio. Most of all, if you enjoy the show, please do spread the word because this show spreads entirely through word of mouth. My mouth is only so big. I just want to apologize to everyone for not interrupting Amy enough this week. I apologize. Thanks. <laughs> Have a good night, everyone. We'll talk. We'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>